Well, good morning. morning. It is good to be here in the house of the Lord with a small part, a very small part of the Universal Church with you all this morning. And as I get kind of settled on where I have to be, um, I just want to say what a pleasure it is, and and I I really appreciate the fact that I I get to do this occasionally. And... um, I pray that uh, my prayers have been this week that um, God would be honored and and you all would be fed. So saying that, uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning, uh, not a Christmas, not a Christmas uh, message, but just uh, following up from last time I spoke on John chapter six. Uh, before looking at John's Gospel, I want to start out with some big picture observations. Um, about John, his life, and his gospel, and his ministry. And then we'll narrow the scope down to uh, just John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. For many of you, this will be a refresher. For others, it may be new. So, the big idea this morning is, Jesus' glory is waiting to be seen in the providence of our trials. And the outline is very simple, just two points. Jesus' glory revealed, and God's purpose in our trials. I'd like to start out with just the question, who is John? John was the son of a fisherman, a more prosperous fisherman, because his father had more than one boat and had hired men. Mark chapter 1, verse 20 tells us that. He had an older brother, James. There are scholars who believe that James had an Aunt Mary, John and James had an Aunt Mary, their mother's sister from Nazareth, who had a unique first pregnancy. One could infer from the Bible that John was a devout Jew. As many first century Jews, he was looking for the fulfillment of God's promise to send Messiah to deliver Israel from Rome and establish his kingdom on earth. We know that John was receptive to that message, the message of another John, I'm sorry, a Levite preacher and prophet with a strange wardrobe and diet who preached in the wilderness of eastern Judea and dunked his followers in the Jordan River. So receptive to John's message, he became a disciple, John 135. One could say that John understood the baptizer's prophetic mission because he left and followed another rabbi whom John the Baptist called the Lamb of God, John 1.36. His name was Jesus, and in hindsight, even the baptizer would say it was the right move. John became one of Jesus' earliest and first followers, John 1.39. Scripture tells us that John stayed with Jesus for three-plus years of ministry. He would see miraculous signs while serving his master, his rabbi. Such things as water turned into wine, the healing of a man paralyzed for 37 years, the healing of a man born blind, and the bringing back of a life of a man named Lazarus who had been dead for four days. To the Jews, this man was dead dead, and Jesus uh, brought him back to life. And John would see his Masonic, messianic hopes for deliverance from Rome dashed at Jesus' crucifixion. While on the cross, his master and friend charged him to take care of Mary, his mother. 
John 19, 26 and 27. Three days later, on a sprint to a tomb, on a Sunday morning, he gazed into that tomb and those messianic hopes would stir again as he began to marvel about what he had just seen. John 20, verse 8. These events come directly from John's gospel, his story of Jesus' life, remembered by John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit some 50 years later after the events. As John pondered and then began to understand God's plans and purposes, dwelling, meditating, praying for 50 years, he felt the leading of the Holy Spirit to write another gospel, another story of Jesus. And I've asked myself repeatedly, why? Why another story of Jesus? The synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us a lot about Jesus and they're exhaustive in scope. We believe that they are God's very words written by each man with his personality and style as he was moved, empowered, and carried along by the Holy Spirit. The easy answer to the question is because God wanted us to know things about Jesus that hadn't been recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. And as I've thought about the question of why and began to meditate on John's Gospel, two observations become very apparent. John's unique style and John's unique content. First, John's unique style. The Synoptics contain mostly narrative. They're just story, they're stories telling of Jesus' life and his death by each gospel writer. And each one has a unique purpose in writing that is awfully, often subtly woven throughout their gospel. Outlining these gospels as to their theme and purpose is difficult, or can be difficult. Not so with the Gospel of John. The differences in style are striking. His gospel contains mostly conversations, conversations with and about Jesus, conversations with all sorts of people, his mother at a wedding, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, an unnamed Samaritan woman from Sychar, an unnamed paralytic at Bethsaida's pool, an unnamed blind man at the temple, two sisters mourning their brother's death. Conversations with common Galileans and religious leaders from Jerusalem, and an extended conversation with his disciples trying to figure out why God the Son, their Messiah, was going to die on a cross. Interspersed after some of those conversations are John's commentary on the relevance and meaning of what Jesus said. John's purpose is very clear. And it's found in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And the ever-present theme running through John's gospel is the glory of Jesus. For John, Jesus' glory is Jesus' deity, to being the Son of God. It is stated first in John chapter 1, verse 14. And this is a great Christmas verse, by the way. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. The first 11 chapters are often referred to as the book of signs. Jesus' glory is on full display in the signs that he performs for all to see. The last 10 chapters are full of the glory he displayed in his death and in his resurrection. These chapters are often referred to as the book of glory. The second observation is John's unique content. As you read John, you see new content. New things are written about Jesus. I've mentioned four already. There is unique teaching, the Good Shepherd in John chapter 10, and the Upper Room Discourse in John 13 through 17. Scholars tell us that 90% of John is unique to his gospel. John chapter 6, though, contains two narratives that are not unique to John. The feeding of the 5,000, which is in all four gospels, and walking, Jesus is walking on the water. So the question comes to mind, if 90% of John's gospel is unique content, why are these two narratives here? Another very interesting observation is that the disciples don't play much of a role in the book of signs. But what is striking in these two stories is that the disciples are front and center. They're intimately involved. Philip is the spotlight for the feeding of the 5,000, and only the disciples are in the boat that are involved in the walking on the water. So why did John include these two narratives? I believe the simple answer to this question lies with John's theme and his purpose, to see the overwhelming display of Jesus' deity and glory in order to convince his readers Jesus is a God the Son, God incarnate, to believe him for eternal life. And I also believe that John is telling us something we need to understand as disciples of Jesus. I spoke previously about the feeding of the 5,000. John added unique perspective of the testing of Philip. The takeaway was that God will graciously test us and test our faith by asking more of us than we can possibly do. The lesson was twofold. When being asked to do what we can, when being tested, do what we can do with the resources available. And two, then take him in faith to Jesus and rest on his faithfulness. I believe John understood and experienced this truth in his ministry. And I think we can agree that Jesus is glorified when we do so. The scripture reading this morning was from, John's, uh, from Mark's account of Jesus walking on the water. Please turn to John chapter 6, 16 through 21. And if you like, you can put a, your finger in Mark chapter 6 because we'll be turning back there for some more details that are not in John's narrative. And if you would, please stand to stretch your legs before we continue on as we stand and as we read God's word. John 6, verses 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. 
when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were crossing. Let's pray. Father, this morning, my prayer is that Jesus' glory would be clearly evident to every hearer this morning. That we would see glory for who, uh, see Jesus for who he is, God the Son, God incarnate. And that as we see more truly, more fully through the Old Testament lens, that we would marvel at the wonder of our Christ, our Savior. Father, this morning, would your word have its intended effect to encourage, to teach, to reprove, to rebuke as necessary, but would it leave us with a deeper, greater appreciation for Jesus, who he is and the work that he has come to do, and the many promises that he he has given to us and he fulfills as we walk this life. Would you be high and lifted up? And would your saints be fed? And would those who do not know Christ be quickened to accept his gracious gift of salvation? And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We can all agree that Jesus is walking on the water is a unique display of his glory, isn't it? It's obvious. No one has had done it before, and no one has done it since. It's a miracle that has become and transcended our culture and has become a cultural idiom. I was thinking about this. You know the guy who can do no wrong? He's still human because he can't do what? Walk on water. Or that celebrity that is so full of themselves that he's still human because he can't walk on water. The act itself abounds in glory, but when that act is looked at through the lens of the Old Testament, I believe we see the majesty of Jesus' glory more fully. The first scripture reference is in Job chapter 9. In Job 9, Job is replying to Bildad, one of his three friends. Verse 8 in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, reads this way. God is the one stretching the heaven alone and walking upon the seas as upon a floor. See, Job's argument is that only God is capable of walking upon the sea as if it were a floor. The same Greek word and verb used for walking in Job is also used in John 6. Jesus walking on the water is something that only God can do. The next Old Testament allusion is associated with Moses. And and Mark makes this very clear in the last phrase of Mark chapter 6, verse 48, when he says, he meant to pass them by. Isn't that strange? I've thought about it for years. 
why would Jesus walk past his disciples as they struggled against the wind and the waves? As I said, I've thought about it for years. Have you? Dane Ortland, the author of Gentle and Lowly, lifted the veil for me on this. His explanation is based on Exodus 34. In just some context, in Exodus 34, Moses is back on Mount Sinai getting a second set of stone tablets with the Ten Commandments because he'd broken the first set. Moses is also waiting for an answer to his audacious request to see God's glory. And God partially answers that request by putting Moses in the cleft of a rock and placing his hand over Moses' eyes so that he can't see his face. Because God had told him, if you see my face, you will die. Moses records this event for us in Exodus 34. And in verses 6 and 7a, he writes this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. In the Septuagint, that Hebrew transla- uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the phrase, passed before him, is the same phrase that it's used in Mark 6.48, translated, he meant to pass them by. Mark is writing to compare Jesus' passing by, walking on the water, to God's passing by Moses on the mountain. It is an equating of Jesus' to God. It is a sign of Jesus' deity. And then Jesus removes all doubt about what he is doing when he says in John chapter 6, verse 20, It is I. It is I. Our translators have made the grammar flow with uh, the translation, it is I. But John wrote, I am. Jesus speaks the very name of God, the name that God had spoken to Moses. Jesus is presenting himself as God before his disciples, who in this instance are a type of Moses. And when God passed by Moses in Exodus 34, he declared his name, the Lord, the Lord. More accurately, God declares, I am, I am. God also stated the attributes he wanted associated with his name. This is very important for us to understand because in ancient Near Eastern culture, the name was associated with the character. Just a couple of examples from Genesis Sarah named her son Isaac because she laughed when she found out she would have a son at 90 years old. And Rachel and Isaac named Jacob heel grabber or trickster or deceiver, and it would be the characteristic of his entire life. What attributes did God want Moses to know about him? Mercy, grace, slow to anger, steadfast love, and faithfulness. Those very attributes, brothers and sisters, are personified in Jesus Christ. The similarities of the two events are striking, but more striking are the contrast between God appearing to Moses 
and God the Son appearing to his disciples in John 6. For example, Moses' eyes were covered, the disciples saw full-on Jesus. Moses saw only what was left of God's presence. The disciples saw God the Son in front of them. God spoke to Moses veiled in a cloud. The disciples spoke to Jesus face to face. God spoke with Moses on special occasions in a special place. Jesus spoke daily with his disciples as they lived life together. God's presence left Moses when he left Mount Sinai. Jesus was constantly with his disciples. And then after Pentecost, Jesus was always present with them via the indwelling Holy Spirit. And by extension, he's always with us. As we look at the contrast, what is more remarkable is that only in Jesus Christ are these attributes of mercy, grace, slow to anger, steadfast love, and faithfulness fulfilled. For God also declared in Exodus 34, verse 7, in the last half, God is a God who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There's a tension there. Do you see it? We're all guilty before a holy God. How can God be both a God of mercy and grace and yet judge iniquity? Doesn't it have to be one or the other? God could declare those attributes to Moses because Jesus, God the Son, would come 1,800 years later, born of a virgin, live a perfect life, and then give his life at Calvary to satisfy the righteous wrath of a holy God. Brothers and sisters, it is only in Jesus that the tension is resolved and God's mercy is revealed to us. To paraphrase the Puritan theologian John Owens, For in him God's justice and pardoning mercy meet and finally make sense. I don't think the disciples were thinking about this while they were in the boat. They were a little preoccupied, weren't they? But there's no doubt in my mind that John got it 50 years later. And that is why John includes this story in his gospel, although it's recorded in Mark and Matthew. It magnificently displays the glory and the deity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in accordance with his purposes for writing. If I stopped here, you'd say, boy, this is a short sermon. And many of you might be thankful. (laughs) And you may have a new appreciation or a deeper understanding of God's glory and deity in display in John 6 in the walking of the water. But I believe there's more to see. As I meditated on this narrative, I couldn't help but notice that Jesus' glory is shown in the midst of a trial. A storm. Mark 6.45 tells us this. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat 
and go before them to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. Now I want you to notice one thing. The disciples got in that boat in a clear obedience to what Jesus had told them to do. They got in the boat, they start rowing across the Sea of Galilee. They haven't done anything wrong. They were being obedient, doing what Jesus told them to do. And what happens next? A strong wind starts to blow. Where did the wind come from? Perhaps John remembered Psalm 107, verses 24 and 25, as he recorded this narrative. It says this, They have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. The wind came from God. And it's not the first time God used wind for his purposes. Referencing Moses, here are three examples from the Exodus accounts where God used the wind. Exodus chapter 10, an east wind brought the plague of the locusts, and after Moses prayed, a west wind took them away. Exodus 14, a strong east wind dried the Red Sea to deliver Israel from Pharaoh's army. And then the same wind probably blew the other way and drowned Pharaoh's army in the sea as they pursued Israel. The disciples didn't know it yet, but the winds and the waves rocking their boat were providentially sent. God the Father wanted to teach them something in the midst of the wind and the waves. The other thing we need to understand is that this is not a a rainstorm. It's a windstorm. And winds on the Sea of Galilee are no laughing matter. The geography of the lake, it's 690 feet below sea level. And it is surrounded by high hills. And it is not uncommon for atmospheric pressure changes in the area to cause very strong winds to blow down the hill and across the lake. In the early 90s, a windstorm actually created 10-foot waves on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples were crossing as instructed by Jesus. The text says they were mowing. Mowing, I'm sorry, they were rowing. The four disciples had experience on the lake, James, John, Peter, and Andrew. The other eight, as far as we know, didn't, and were likely concerned for their safety, wondering if they could swim. One disciple on the tiller, up to four rowing, and I bet some of the others were bailing water as it spilled into the boat. Take a second and see the scene in your mind's eye. The situation was boarding, bordering on being chaotic. Does that sound familiar to you? Living life following Jesus, being obedient to what you know is true, daily time in the word, daily time in prayer, preaching the gospel to yourself, serving, and then a strong wind blows. That's not supposed to happen, is it? When strong winds blow in our life, I often say to Patty, life is happening again. We've all experienced it. But recognize this, not all trials are because of our sin and winds blow in the providence of God. The next thing I want you to notice is that Jesus saw the disciples in their their distress. 
Mark 6, 47 and 48 say this. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Jesus wasn't with them because he was praying, but he knew what was happening. Jesus saw them. This is amazing because it's night, and the last time I knew, it's dark at night, and the boat was three to four miles away. Not only did Jesus see, but he understood the situation. They were making headway painfully. What a descriptive, descriptive term headway painfully. It wasn't easy. It was strenuous. And it was scary. What was supposed to be everyday easy is now headway painfully. When the winds of difficulties, pain and heartache blow, when life is happening again, we can be comforted that Jesus sees and understands. The darkness of those circumstances or the distance we are from Jesus does not keep him away from us and keep him from seeing and understanding our painful headway. Remember, Jesus sees and understands our situation. John 6, 19 tells us what happens next. Jesus comes. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. Jesus takes the initiative and moves towards his disciples in their distress and in their trial. Jesus' concern doesn't stop with seeing and knowing. Jesus is empathetic, and his empathy moves him to action. He moves towards the disciples. He walks on the water three to four miles to them. We don't under, we're not told how this happens, but it must have taken some effort. If we take the passage from Job literally, somehow the sea and the waves flattened out in front of him as he walked to the disciples' boat. I'll say this. It was mercy, grace, and abounding steadfast love in action. When we're facing life again, what situation or circumstance providentially cast upon us can keep us from his steadfast love. John Owens makes the analogy of the perfect husband moving towards his beloved wife in distress. He writes, Jesus is a husband to us, moving toward us in tender care and personal affection. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And again, three verses later in Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. However, the disciples misinterpreted the reality of what they were seeing. Mark tells us that they thought it was a ghost, 
literally a phantom. And they were frightened. All three gospel accounts mention this, their fear. And as a result, John writes in verse 20, But he said to them, I am, do not be afraid. Rather than seeing the glory of the Son of God on display, fear gripped their hearts. We may be more sophisticated today, but like the disciples, we rarely see Jesus when the winds of life blow and the waves rock our boats. We don't see the providence of God. More likely, what we see are the fears of our hearts manifested by the ferocity of our trials. Jesus knows what fear does to us. Fear blinds us by seizing our mental focus, blinding us to spiritual truths. Our trial can become so big that of the attention we give it, as a result, God can become small or even worse, a phantom. The comfort of Jesus' promised presence disappears as fear sets in. Then Jesus spoke to his disciples to calm their fears. Jesus speaks to us today by his word, by the indwelling Holy Spirit, or by a timely word from a brother and sister. Seeing and hearing Jesus in our trials has the immediate response of calming our fears. It may be dark, the situation dire, and it may be hard, but Jesus is always there. Our fears are temporary, but God's loving care is eternal. I want you to notice something in the narrative also recorded by Matthew and Mark, and it's very important, and it's in verse 21a. It says, Then they were glad to take him into the boat. Jesus waits for the disciples to take him him into the boat. John Piper puts it this way. They had to ask him into the boat. Now, doesn't that seem like a no-brainer? The principle is that it's not enough to see Jesus standing on the sea of our trials or hear him speaking in the wind, do not be afraid. There is more. Jesus desires to get into the boat during our storm and weather it with us. But he waits to be invited. He waits to be invited. And that leads me to the last phrase in verse 21. It's an odd phrase. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And this is unique to John's gospel. Matthew and Mark tell us the winds ceased when Jesus got into the boat. Some commentators say the word translated immediately can mean very soon. Some commentators think there were two miracles, the walking on the water and the transport of the boat to land. I'll be honest, that doesn't seem to be the point to me. This phrase has really caused me to think about my trials and how I respond to them. Here's what I've realized. and I'm, Many of you also have realized these same things. My trials haven't ended immediately when I've woken up to realize that Jesus is with me on the sea of my trials. 
Many didn't even end when I invited him into the boat with me. Experience tells us that we shouldn't expect miraculous relief from our trials when we see Jesus and invite him into our proverbial boat. I think the point is, is when we are with Jesus, the winds become background noise. If you look at the text, there's no mention of the wind and the waves after Jesus arrives. The purpose of the winds and the waves is to drive us to closer fellowship with Jesus and greater affection for him. So what is John teaching us about God's purpose in trials? Well, here's what I think. The winds that rocked the disciples' boat were providentially orchestrated by God the Father so that God the Son, Jesus Christ, could wondrously display his glory, his deity, to his disciples. God the Father made the situation as chaotic as necessary so that the only, only obvious outcome would be for the disciples to gladly welcome God into their boat. After that, all the trial becomes is an afterthought because of the fellowship that they had with Jesus. Later, after reflection, they saw his glory and his deity in the trial. And so I believe, brothers and sisters, so it is for us. God's purpose in our trials is to drive us closer to him. I've used the metaphor of the wind-tossed boat for trials, but what does it practically mean to look for Jesus and invite him into our boats? So I'm going to share what I've been practicing, what I've been learning. I, I hope that you can take some things away that you can implement and be practical for you. For me, when I realize that the winds of my trial are blowing, that they're providential, that they're allowed by God for his plans and his purposes. There's something he wants to show me. The perspective changes, the perspective, I'm sorry, this changes my perspective about what I'm experiencing when I realize that God's, it, God's in it. The perspective change helps me to look for Jesus by remembering he is always with me and remembering his promises. This causes me to acknowledge that I'm not in control. And I'll just say, duh, to that. And to humbly pray and to ask for his help and guidance. And then I intentionally draw near through the disciplines of grace, especially the word of grace and the throne of grace using the scripture in prayer. And when fear or guilt start to change my focus, I repeat the process. And I will be honest, I'm repeating the process a lot. The amazing thing is that in this process works even when my trial is a result of my own sin. God's mercy, his grace, his steadfast love are not based on my performance. They're not based on your performance. But they're based on his eternal, unchanging love for us. One of the hardest things about being an elder 
is walking through life's storms with you. We've all been touched by trials and suffering, but some of you have endured big, hard things. Cancer diagnoses, life-changing illnesses, deaths of loved ones, broken dreams and hopes. I wanted to be sure the applications are valid for all kinds of trials, from the, I've got a flat tire, to I've got cancer. And I am convinced of these things from John chapter 6. One, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and righteousness for every believer in Jesus Christ. I think that's the first thing. God loves us. And he, those attributes, those characteristics are ours in Christ, freely given And they are a promise that we should never, ever forget. As believers, Jesus is with us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. His presence is always with us and never leaves us, even if we don't feel it. The triune God, by and for his purposes, ordains and providentially allows trials in our lives. There is something he wants to teach us or show us in them. They always have a purpose. Jesus wants us to seek him in our trials. He is there waiting to be seen and welcomed into them. His presence brings peace and enabling grace for us to endure our trial, whether it is temporary or terminal. Fear is our enemy. The battlefield is our heart's in our minds. We defeat fear by changing the focus from its cause to focusing on Jesus and remembering his promises and goodness. Paul Tripp says this about remembering. We have to do this again and again. Doing so is not a denial of present difficulties. Rather, it forces you to look at it through the lens of the presence, power, and love of your Savior. Don't let fear win in your trials. When we see Jesus in our trials and respond by seeking and asking him into them, his glory is displayed to us and through us. We may not see it right away, but as many will, and eventually we will. I have found the Psalms to be a big help in keeping Jesus my focus when life is happening. Here are verses from five Psalms that have been helpful to me. Psalm chapter 3, or Psalm 3, 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he heard me from his holy hill. Psalm 46, verses 1 In the first part of verse 2, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Psalm 63, verses 7 and 8, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Psalm 91, verses 14 through 16. 
Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. God with us in trouble. I mean, I get into enough trouble on my own, but to have God with me there in my trouble. And he says, I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. If strong winds are blowing and waves are rocking your boat, I would encourage you to read all five, pick one, and memorize it. And when the winds distract your focus from Jesus, repeat the promises of the psalm to yourself. Better yet, do it before the strong winds blow because it will help you weather the storm. For those who have never believed in Jesus, who have never seen the need to be forgiven of your sins, the bad news is is that you are on the sea alone. Jesus isn't coming because you are not his. And the trials you are experiencing now are nothing compared to an eternity suffering God's righteous wrath for sins in a place called hell. You have one option today. Turn from your sins. Forsake any way that you think you can make your, yourself right with God. Confess your need for a Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the only way to God, and he is the only name by which you can be saved. Ask him in prayer to save you and to display his glory in you by being born again. If you have any questions about this, please see me or talk to the person who brought you or with any of our elders or deacons. It would be wondrous to see Jesus' glory displayed in your salvation. Jesus' glory and the purpose and trials. Observations from John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. Will you see God's glory the next time the winds of life blow? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this time that we've had in your word. Father, I pray that we have seen your glory. And we can see as we reflect your glory displayed in our trials as we walk with them, with you in them. And I pray, Father, as we go forward today that we would remember the gloriousness of Jesus. And that when you send the strong winds and the waves begin to rock our proverbial boat and life gets hard, that we would remember the promises that you are a gracious and merciful God who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, that Jesus is always with us through the indwelling Holy Spirit, that you are waiting to be seen and acknowledged and welcomed into our trial, and that, Father, as we take you into our trial, that your glory would be seen even above the storm, 
that it would be to your praise and to your honor and for our good. And I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.